Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. I absolutely love doing this interview with Paul Oberschneider. Paul's story is fascinating. An American going into Central Europe at a time when it had a lot of Soviet influence and setting up what would become the largest development firm in Central Europe was no mean feat, especially when you don't even speak the language. Paul touches on something that I think is really important for anyone developing commercial assets, and that's yield compression. If you don't understand what that is, I've put an explanation in the show notes, so please have a read. Before we start the episode, I just want to thank those of you that have left us really nice and kind reviews. It's really appreciated. If you do like what we do and haven't left a review, please show your appreciation and leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions about any of the topics raised on any of the Rodcast episodes or have a particular issue, please let us know. If you do have a property business and you're trying to move it forward and feel that you could benefit from an external review, you can book me for a consultation or board advisory service. For more information on any of those, please email info at incomethroughproperty.co.uk. Now on with the episode. Today I am with the CEO of Hilltop Credit Partners, Paul Oberschneider. Welcome, Paul. Hey, Rob. Nice to be here. Paul, would you mind just starting where I always start with a guess, which is how did you get into property? Oh, well, it, it wasn't anything that was really planned, really. I think perhaps as a lot of your listeners might know, I sort of started on Wall Street. But before that, you know, my mother was very much involved in buying single family homes and renting them. And when I went off to university... And that was that was in the states. That was in the states, and you know, and, and then when I went off to university, I spent a lot of time in real estate offices, looking at older buildings in Saratoga Springs, which is where I was going to school. So I'd always had a sweet tooth for fixing stuff up and you know turning it around and perhaps renting it, but it was never anything that I really thought about as a career. Mm-hmm. It was a, kind of a not hobby. a passion, but a yeah. bit of a hobby. So I went and did the Wall Street thing, and, and, and when I left, I was on my way to grad school and ended up taking a holiday to Central and Eastern Europe, specifically Estonia, where my father had come from. And, you know, the intention was really just to stay a few weeks and come home and go back to school. And, of course, you know, happily, I never did that. I ended up staying. And I got involved with a lot of different people, people that were starting a bank, and was helping these guys put together their credit department, which interestingly is the business I'm in today. But we built up the credit department for what at that time was called the Bank of Tallinn, which was later sold to um, SEB. And I needed a place to live. I was I was renting a flat basically in a in a in a very kind of Soviet-styled industrial building on the outskirts of town which was not very appealing. And, um, and and I wanted somewhere nicer to live, considering that I was, I seemed to be staying. So I went and bought two units in a, in a building next to the American embassy, put them together, went up into the attic, and I built this fabulously cool bachelor pad for myself, which I was super excited to move into 
until someone told me the rents that I could achieve by renting it to the embassy. So sadly, I never moved in. I rented the flat out and I thought, well, you know, that was kind of easy. I, I should maybe do that again. And besides, I need another flat. So I did that the second time. And sadly, I never moved into that either. <laughs> and one thing led to another. And pretty soon I had developed, you know, eight or nine of these things and, and was getting a pretty decent income. So I started off my property journey as being a single unit kind of builder and then renting them out for the income, which is a great way to start. And I think a lot of people start yeah. the same way. And, you know, you can really, if you keep doing that, you can scale quite, quite happily. At about that time, you know, I was dealing with a lot of brokers and people were kind of following me around because I was buying stuff. And almost organically, we, we created this company called Oberhaus, which was just the combination of my last name and my wife's last name. And it rung a chord in the market because it was very Germanic. It translated across border in those countries. Not that I was thinking of going anywhere other than where I was at the time. But later on, it turned out that it was a really good name to use because it wasn't sort of language specific or country specific. Yeah. It translated across, you know, six, five, six countries easily because everybody understood it to mean sort of top house, ober house. So from a branding point of view, I got really lucky. You know, later on, it allowed us to take our brand across border and and do what a lot of local guys couldn't do simply because their names were so local centric, yeah. if you will, you know, language specific. So that's how I, I, I really got started. And, and I flipped that portfolio of income producing apartments or flats to to a Canadian woman who happened to be visiting town. And she said had some business there and um, she thought the yields were great. So so you were essentially just selling the income stream off to her with, yeah, with these yeah. buy to let assets, at the which time, yeah. which which left me with a bigger pot of money. So then I started buying buildings. And was this still in Estonia? Yeah, this yeah. is still in Tallinn, actually. I started buying buildings. And instead of doing one units and two units, I was doing sort of 14, 20 units and renting them out. And again, you know, did the same thing, did a few of them and ended up selling them. And so you, so, so when you did that, you would rent them out and then and yeah. then sell them once they yeah. were income producing. Yeah. Okay. Great. So the pot kept getting bigger. Now, the advantage I had was it's a bit early in the liquidity curve, but mm -hmm. but the advantage I had was that asset prices were slowly. This was early '90s, but they were slowly inching up, sort of every day. And you know, you'd build something on day one, and 365 days later, or whatever. Besides the value that you'd created and put into it, the asset value itself, the underlying asset, went up. So you had three three values. You had that income value, yeah. the value on the yield, you, and you, you had the capital value, yeah. and then you also had the value that you'd yeah. added. Yeah, and and then of course capital was borrowing money was wasn't easy, but I mean it was it was getting easier and easier by the day. So we just kept using a lot of leverage. Now leverage is great when the market's moving in your favor. Yeah. I mean, it, it allows you to grow exponentially and that's what we did. You know, we borrowed as much as we could on every deal. We, we'd buy stuff, we'd take all our money out, we'd put it in the next deal. 
But, you know, when the market turns, as it has here recently, leverage can also cut like a knife mm. and it can be very dangerous. And I know even personally, I'm, I'm, I'm having difficulty with a few personal assets that I have right now that in hindsight were slightly over leveraged. So leverage can work very much against you. But at the time, in an upward market, leverage is a great thing. And, and we used as much as we could. So, so that's how it all got started. At that point, you were basically buying these residential buildings and renting them out, selling them yeah. off. At what point did you start to move from residential to commercial? Because you're quite famous for building very large yeah. sort of shopping centers and retail parks and things like that. So where did that transition come in? Well, it came in slowly again. The first commercial property we bought was a corner kind of community center in a small suburb of, of Tallinn. And it had a grocery anchor on the bottom floor. It had a pub in the basement. And, and then on, this, on the first floor, I guess as you call it here, the first floor, it had sort of a parade of little shops that sold everything from, you know, well, you know, cheap t-shirts, sneakers, you know, key cutting places and all the rest of this stuff. And, and so we bought that in a, in, from a local and, and we managed it for a while. And we found that, you know, we learned very quickly that you don't want retail on the first floor. <laughs> that doesn't work very well because how do you get people to go upstairs? But we learned that the grocery shop or store was a great anchor. And and that supported basically the rest of the building. But we had a lot of turnover on that first floor. And we tried to make cosmetic improvements, like we put an awning around the building, we painted the building, we put in new flooring, we did all this stuff. And it, at the end of the day, none of those improvements helped cash flow. Mm. It just cost us money. The real income was from the, the anchor tenant, which was that grocery store. Because no matter what you did, you couldn't get people up the stairs. Um, and so these sort of tenants of yours would end up not making money and have to. Have to yeah, no, it was around. a revolving. Yeah. It was a yeah. you know, it was a revolving door of tenants all the time. All these small tenants, a real pain. Mm. But we we cut our teeth on that, you know, and 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 we built, you know, we we created a, a like a lettings business, a commercial lettings business, to deal with that because it was such a headache, and that later on became the backbone to Oberhaus advisory, which was, you know, we did residential sales and lettings and commercial sales and lettings. We had a project and property management team. So, you know, all these things we did became something else later, but we were doing them initially out of necessity, which is, I think, how most businesses that grow organically, how, how they get there, because we weren't doing it thinking, well, let's create this pan-European yeah. agency business that does all these things are the first thing on our mind was well we need people to help us with tenants so let's let's throw these three people at this problem and let them sort it out so we had the center it was kind of working okay it wasn't great we were still building the residential stuff and then one day somebody basically came into my office and said you know there's this piece of land it's for sale. It's on this corner. It was surrounded by a suburban area. The, the fellow that brought me the deal said, I know one of the local grocery stores wants to expand. So from one day to the next, we became retail, grocery anchored retail shopping 
developers. So I came into London. I found a firm that was going to do. <laughs> I mean, we in hindsight it was really funny because we built a very American-looking grocery store in the middle of this Estonian <laughs> suburb. I mean, it had the ta- the turrets, and it had it looked like something you'd see in Peoria, Illinois. Yeah. And it was so out of place, but it was amazing, and it worked. You know, we built a lot of parking, so we put gas station there, we put, you know, restaurant, pod. And, and did you find the tenants first as you were, as you were building? So oh, you, no, you, no. You we had always, those covenants? Or yeah, we always, we always, so we went to the local, the big grocery uh, anchor, and <laughs> we got a deal from them. For I think it was ten years plus. And so you already had that income stream. So, that so, you were building, so, so, so we had the tenant. We went to the bank on the back of that tenant's balance sheet, and we borrowed the money to build the site, and we delivered it on time. I don't think any of us were really mindful about costs or anything. We just yeah. wanted to get it up and get, get the tenant running, in, yeah. and it worked. And and the parking lot filled up, and people went there to buy their groceries and. And then what we did was instead of, you know, building a first floor, we put the retail parade around the front end of the of the grocery store so that as people came out after they bought their groceries, they were confronted so, with a, a variety of... So we never had more so, than, let's say, 15 small shops. But you had created your own footfall for those tenants well, with, by having that yeah, grocery anchor. Yeah, so exactly. And, and you couldn't avoid them because you'd come out of the till and there they were. So, you know, if you needed your shoes fixed or your key cut or you needed a hair appointment or you needed, you know, or you wanted to get something to eat, you know, all this stuff was available and it was right there in front of you. And, and that model worked. So you, we, we'd get this very sort of marginal return on the grocery anchor, which was good. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was... Well, that was your strong covenant. The strong local, covenant. Yeah. But then the parade of shops that we built around it was the bonus. Yeah. And that was the juice that gave us the good returns on the center. So we started with that one. And almost in rapid succession, once we did that, local contractors, landowners... Other people came to us with land deals and said, would you look at this? Would you look? And I don't think we ever bought any right away. But what we did do is we approached the city. And if you recall, well, you probably don't remember, don't know. But at that particular time, the government was trying to privatize a lot of stuff from industries that it had, businesses that it had. And a lot of the privatization was also unused land. So we went to, or we would go kind of behind the curtains. There would be an auction on certain land plots. And nobody had sort of thought about building grocery anchor shopping centers in the middle of a potato field, you know. And, you know, everybody was kind of focused on building residential kind of close to the city center. But there were these there were these regions where you know the closest grocery center was a kiosk, you know, in the basement of an old building, and yet there were hundreds of thousands of people that lived in these communities. So you had that demand. All so you had the yeah. demand. But I remember think people thinking we were absolutely out of our minds. We bought this massive site on the corner of a predominantly Soviet or Russian, I should say, community, you know, nobody could understand what we were going to do. And we built this massive 
grocery anchored again shopping center. But this time, instead of like a parade of shops of 14 or 15, it was more like 100. And we put the grocery in the middle and we wrapped this whole thing around with restaurants and shops and blah, blah, blah. And of course, at the time, we were lucky, the, you know, the local... The local retail market was expanding and people were bringing in brands from outside, so they wanted new places to put them. Everything was kind of in our favor. We, we had shifted from the local grocery operator to now National. a Finnish operator. You know, Like the modern day Lidl or... Well, back then, back then it was Kesco, which is now right. something else. But, you know, we got Kesco in, then it was Prisma from Finland... So, and then, so these are huge firms. And then yeah. Remy, you know, we got Remy in. And, and we built these things literally, you know, I mean, I remember one instance where we, we literally built one right across the street of the other one. And, but there was still the demand there. And the banks were like, well, aren't you going to, you know, aren't you going to dilute your foot flow? And aren't you going to, but it was a different brand. It was a different yeah. anchor tenant. And, and I just kind of, I didn't know any better. I said, well, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. I think, I think there's enough demand here. So we built one literally right across the street, and it worked. That's how we got into the commercial retail market. It was kind of, not by accident, but, you know, we'd never done it before. We had bought, we started with buying a community senator center, and then we built our first very much American-styled shopping center, which you know, still today looks a little out of place. But but the rest of them were, were pretty much big box grocery anchored centers. And then we started building big box DIY stuff for people like Bauhaus um, and garden centers and things like that. So I just, going back to that point I made earlier, you found those tenants, you found mm-hmm. those strong covenants. And then, for example, if you knew that the bank would finance it at a four value at yeah. a four percent yield, and yeah. you would build it to an eight percent yield. You were sort of essentially doubling your money. Well, we were building it at a higher yield than that. We yeah. were in the high teens. We wow. were building at high teens. I mean, that is that is a, hu- a huge amount of uplift. Uh, you know, it's, it was, and yeah. when cap rates came down yeah. from like we, we when we started building these things, we were built. We were delivering them. We were building them at. 17% cap rates. Wow. And and in the end, we were selling it for five. <laughs> so, you know, that's the kind of yield compression that... That, that, that I dream of. <laughs> that, well, everybody dreams of. And, but, you know, the sad part is, is I don't think, unless you go to Africa or something, yeah. but, you know, I don't think that we'll ever see that kind of yield compression ever again. Mm. It was a one-shot deal... Everything, everything was right for it. Everything yeah. was right. You know, you had a, an emerging market that needed all these things. You had a young population that, that wanted to improve their lives, so they worked hard, and they wanted to shop. You had a population that had never been exposed to these kind of goods before, so they wanted to buy all this stuff. You had land that was cheap. You had liquidity from the banks. It, you know, it, it all worked. So we were just riding this perfect wave, and... The great thing about it is there wasn't really many people competing with us. So we had kind of an open door for a very, very long time to do this. And at what stage did you get the opportunity or did you decide that, okay, we've done this in Estonia, but there's other markets in 
well, Central Europe that, that what, were available? What, what led that was really, it wasn't the development business, it was actually the agency business or the Oberhaus. And that gave um, you opportunity. And that gave us the opportunity because we'd go and plant a flag in all these different cities and build a big team. And, you know, so, so it was all driven kind of by the service business. And the service business really acted as our intel machine or boots on the ground, mm-hmm. if you will, in all the various markets where we worked. Because how many, how many different countries were you operating in by the time you... Five. You got rid of it, yeah. Yeah, no, five. Wow. And how many, um, I mean, how much square foot of, of real estate had you developed at, at that point? Roughly? I think it had to be somewhere near. I mean, it's been quoted, but, you know, it's debatable how you measure it yeah. and whatnot. But, you know, it's like three million square feet. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely sort of mind-boggling numbers there. It is mind-boggling numbers. If I'd built that kind of square meter in Britain, you know, <laughs> you know, I'd be on the FTSE 100 yeah, or whatever, yeah. you know, but... You know, the interesting thing is we did all this stuff and we never really considered ourselves as being a really big player. We just, you know, we would kind of go from project to project and get it done. You know, we always had another one on the hopper and we'd get that done. And, you know, in hindsight, and I didn't recognize this at the time, but in hindsight, we were a pretty massive player in those markets. And we kind of never gave us the credit. We never gave ourselves the credit for having done what we did we were just like you know we were just kind of doing what we did and never really leveraged that in a way that if i had the opportunity to do that again today how i would leverage it today you know maybe we were just more mature enough we were good at what we did but you know we just didn't see how big this could have gotten yeah and you know? do, and do you think i mean Obviously, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but looking back, do you think there was any other opportunities that maybe you you missed out on that you could have could have gone into, such as other maybe other countries? Oh, or? I missed. You know, I mean, hindsight's a terrible yeah. thing because you kind of get caught in the trap of thinking about what if, and I try not to do that, but it's it's always there. You know, when we sold our stuff in 2006, 2007, 2008, we were in really, you know, we were at the top of the market and we were very, very lucky to sell the way we did. The absolute biggest mistake, I, and I always tell people this is, you know, when you're on a, when you're on a wave and you get to shore, you don't get off the board and, and, and go go home you get back on the board and you paddle out and you ride the next wave what we did was we exited all these markets what, what and then the, we what, tu- and then we turned the lights off and what was the trigger for you to exit because obviously you say you were very lucky but i mean you exited several different companies at that time yeah right before great financial crash yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean something must have been telling you hmm it's time to get off this wave Did, well you know, I'd like to think I was smart, but to be honest, I don't think I was smart. I think I was rather lucky. And circumstances in my personal life had changed. I had a son who was living in London. You know, we had already bought lots of stuff in South America and Argentina. I was spending six months out of the year in at my farm in South America. And I built this organization that actually kind of ran itself. To be honest, I kind of lost interest. Mm. It Things had become so easy 
that and they worked so well that I, I knew there was always going to be money in the bank. I knew what I was going to get paid every quarter. I knew I could sell stuff and buy more things. And so my passion or my drive that allowed me to build those first apartment units was gone. And at the time, I didn't have the wherewithal to sort of see the future. Hmm. I, I didn't, like I said, I, I hadn't really realized what a huge organization we had built, and I didn't really give it credibility. I felt extremely lucky to be to have sold all this stuff. I thought I had won the lottery because you did. You sold your, uh, I mean, the development company, but you yeah. also had a, <clears throat> created quite a pretty amazing portfolio of uh, luxury hotels as yeah. well that was, that you sold off to um, yeah. an, another company at that point. So yeah. it wasn't well, just hotels, one business, it was ho- several. It was several. It was hotels, it was the agency business, the, the project property management business. It was a credit mortgage bank called Real Estate Express. It was the development, the port- retail portfolio, and it was land banks that we had built up over time. And it was residential. So, so we sold we sold lots of stuff. Rather than sort of saying, okay, I've got this now this massive reputation and this pot of money, what can I do with that? I, I, I was like a kid who had just stolen some candy. <laughs> you know, I took the candy and I ran. Whereas what I should have done is gone on a very long holiday and come back and sat in my chair and bought it all back. And today I could be you know, well, you, you say, you know, but so, so I missed that opportunity because the wave from sort of 2012 up to 2015, 16 was massive. It was actually bigger than the first wave that I was on. So and do you think that was but just I, down to I, rates coming down? But I left, I had left the beach. What? Yeah, but if it, better to get off the train early, right? If yeah. you if you had left it a, another year, maybe or two years, well, you might if you if you left it another that, year, right? I'd have nothing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because and do you think there was a point where because of because we were doing, so overly yeah, leveraged and you were doubling down? No, every time. no, no. We were so we would yeah. have been a year later, a week later, we would have been wiped out because. Banks call their mortgages, yeah. banks call their loans. I have friends that lost private equity firms, investment management firms that, that had mismatched their debt to what they had bought, and, and it was just a mess. So, so yeah, the, so the, the good news is yeah. we were really lucky. So hindsight can be yeah. a terrible thing, but also you, yeah, you, no. you, it, it looks like the, uh, the results were pretty fantastic, yeah, to be were. honest. Yeah. And so... One of the things that you kind of touched on there, where you're going into five different countries, and bear in mind, you're American, you're over in uh, sort of Eastern Europe. Yeah. There's a lot of Soviet kind of rule coming into play. Yeah. What were some of the difficulties and challenges of creating a business in all these different countries that were, well, essentially very different from states? And what about like and scaling? What were some of the big challenges you had there? Well, language is the first one. So, you know, I was forced to hire smart locals and I just relied on smart locals to to get the job done. So I learned how to delegate really quickly because I had to, not because I was smart and had gone through, you know, some MBA course that taught teaches you how to delegate. I, I delegated because I had a language restriction no matter wherever I went. So I had to hire smart locals and 
they had to, of course, speak English, but, you know, we did everything in English. And uh, then they'd go into their markets and they'd do everything in their local markets and within their own customs. So scaling wasn't really too difficult. And, and, and of course, you know, you had the wind at your back. So, again, we were, we were at the right place at the right time. When you were doing the, obviously, we spoke about the retail parks mm. and, and the, with the grocery anchors. Were you still doing residential at that time as well? Or had you just decided? No, no, no. By, by, by towards the end, we were doing almost all residential. You know, I remember I was looking at some of the memos just a couple of weeks ago. You know, we were we were looking at doing, you know, two, three hundred unit units in Warsaw, Luge, Krakow. So we we had formed a joint venture with I think it was Heitman and with Granger PLC. Yeah. And we had a plan to build thousands and thousands of residential units across Poland and Estonia. And we started some of them and flipped them on in 2007. So, wow. so the, the plan at the time was not to build more retail. It was to build more residential. And the interesting thing about it is we wrote this research report, which I kind of read the other day. And I, and I was dumbstruck at how spot on it was. We were talking about the emergence of mortgage financing coming into yeah. these markets. And we were talking about young people wanting to improve their lives and having the availability of capital now to do that, both from the equity point of view, but also from a financing point of view. And we determined the demand of how much housing could be built. And we had this whole business plan. I mean, it is. It, I, I don't even know who wrote this. I mean, I, I wrote most of it, but I can't even believe I wrote that looking back because it was so spot on. And that's exactly what we should have done. But the problem was we got hit in 2008 with the crisis. You know, if you remember 2008, 2009, 2010, yeah. everyone thought the world was going to end. You know, we can all sit here and say, you know, you should have built 3,000 units in Warsaw. Well, if, 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 but, if funding but, had been pulled... But, but, then, but yeah. you, you just you can't really, can't really look at it that way. We were also looking at resi stuff in Germany at the time, which was the perfect moment to do that. And we were looking to do that with Apollo and a few other people. And we never pulled that trigger either. So we missed a lot of trigger pulls because we were all hugely nervous. And, and well, rightly so. And scared about what was around the corner. But the strategy was spot on. Yeah. God, that's, that is just fascinating. Fast forward to now, yeah. and you've now created a, uh, a, new, a new business, yeah. which is funding <clears throat> UK residential developments. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that business and why you feel now is a good time to be heading into that, into that market? Well, the one skill set I seem to have is this ability to time things right. And I don't know why, but that seems to be kind of what I do. I think if I had been in this business four years ago, I might not be sitting here talking to you today because my loan book might look pretty bad. <laughs> but what I wanted to be able to do was take my sort of deal-making skills, my development skills, <clears throat> my understanding of the, the capital structure and how to put that together, and I wanted to do something where I could take all those skills and put them together into one service or product. What we came up with was a very private equity-like model that funds SME developers in their marketplace. You know, guys that do 
less than 300 units a year, let's say, mm-hmm. but know their local markets, but need access to capital. And these borrowers or developers don't necessarily have the financial skills to put it all together, or they rely on brokers. I mean, brokers are everywhere in this market mm-hmm. and they're piecing it together. And I have nothing against brokers, but... It's just more pigs at the trough, isn't it's it? It's just like yeah. you've got all these people trying to, you know piece stuff together. And we said, you know what, why don't we put together a private equity like model where we're backing, we're not lenders. What we are is we're backing management teams to deliver a product. Um, And we are exit driven, meaning that our returns as a lender or as a provider of capital are very much aligned with the borrowers. So we don't get our returns unless the borrower, unless the management team hits their targets. We're not like a bank at all. We're a capital provider. What we do is we provide the senior, the mez, and and part of the equity in a very aggressive capital stack for the management team. So we're backing the horse and we're backing the jockey. You know, we're looking at the product. We're saying, okay, do we like it? Do we like the management team? And then we're backing that combination. Um, Whereas a lot of first charge lenders or even mez lenders are really just backing the asset, aren't they, rather than... The well, the, the you know the asset mm-hmm. or, or the jockey, or, yeah. but not you know not both. But we take a very private equity approach. We're backing the management team. We're backing the results. We're very much aligned, and then we give the developer some hurdles so that if he does even better than what his targets are, you know he can get a valuation adjustment on his return so he can even do better. So everyone's on the same page, and so that's on the credit side. And what what that does is it makes a very complex process very simple because we do it with one facility we don't have different facilities you don't have to piece it together there's one cost of capital and so you don't have all the intercreditor agreements you don't have to negotiate with three different parties it's all under one facility all Mm -hmm. under the hilltop facility that's the credit bucket on the equity side we're also creating an equity bucket since our debt product is very equity-like and we're all aligned to achieve the same results, in a lot of cases, the developers don't even have all the equity they need, even that 10%. So what we say is, if okay, if we're going to take the time and underwrite this project and back you guys, if there's a shortfall in the equity, we will, through our Rolodex of investors, we'll actually raise the equity as well. And we put it in as preferred stands above the sponsor, typically might get a coupon in terms of the waterfall. It's it's just another piece of that financial puzzle that we're able to now do. We really are like a private equity firm yeah. providing capital to the real estate development market. What's really interesting is one of my other guests, Jason Tracy, who's the founder of Beemore, was actually saying that they've completely shifted on their on how they get their deals funded to a private equity model because it's so much more flexible and they can work with these private equity houses much better, yeah. uh, which I think is, fits in really well with what you're saying. You mentioned there that four years ago, if you had done this, your loan book might not be looking so mm-hmm. great. Why do you think now is a good time for UK residential developments? Well, funding gap aside, which everybody talks about, there is still the structural shortage of housing in the UK. I mean, a thousand people are born every day in this country and not enough stock has been put on the market. So, but it has to be the right stock. It has to be affordable. And that's what we look at first is the affordability. I think you're going to get a shakeout of a lot of people that probably shouldn't have been in this business 
both on the lending side as well as the development side. I think that's already started, hasn't well, it? Certainly it, it, in the it, southeast. You know, I, I, I've been putting up this graph for the last two years saying, be careful. And everybody kind of chuckles and, you know, goes away mm-hmm. and has another canapé and, and, <laughs> and Heineken. But, you know, I've been putting this, it's well known that I've been putting this graph on the wall saying, you know, we are going to get hit, we're going to hit the wall. And we have hit the wall. And a lot of these sort of peer-to-peer lenders and alternative lenders that have come in the market really pushed out capital at any cost just to get fees. And, you know, they did very little underwriting on the deal. And what they're what they found is probably that they should have never put that capital out in the first place. And the sad part about it is a lot of sort of mom and pop retail investors got hooked up into this. We've all heard about these bonds. I know there are a couple of guys in the market talking about some of these schemes, Ponzi schemes and stuff. You know, and it was always like steal from Peter to pay Paul, steal from Peter to pay Paul to pay these back. And eventually someone's got to pay for it. And if you're in a rising market, you can do that. Yeah, you've you got can, a bit you of can, wiggle room. Well, you can wiggle your way out because there's always someone that wants to buy another bond. And you can, you know, there's always someone someone looking for a return. And, you, you know, but in a down market, in a stagnant market, the, the musical stair, chairs stop. And you're seeing this now. So the sad part about all these platforms is they've got hundreds of thousands of investors that have, you know, downloaded these, these property development bonds and... You know, there isn't a chance in hell they're ever going to get paid back. And and that's a real shame. I mean, a bond is only as good as what the security behind it is. And a lot of the time, it's it's essentially non-existent. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a real shame. So anyway, the point is that capital is withdrawing from the market. There's this sudden great uncertainty around the sector itself. People are exiting the business. And actually, that's the time when I start to pay attention because when the market's really crowded and everyone's doing really well, it's very competitive. You don't get to see opportunities. You don't, you don't get the best returns. You know, so I'm, I'm fortunate that I think we are where we are. We're coming into this with a very clean balance sheet and there's demand. It's just see, seeing the opportunities, isn't it? I think so important. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, unfortunately, have ridden a wave and maybe doubled down on what they're doing. And it's, uh, that, that's a dangerous game. What do you think then are the biggest risks to your business right now? And what are you putting in place to mitigate against those? Well, I mean, the biggest risk in our business is always capital raising. So it's not so much deal flow. It's, you know, you can have this logic and people agree with you. But the capital raising part... A lot of institutional investors, you know, are very gun shy. They, you know, there's this Brexit thing. There's mm-hmm. all this political uncertainty. You know, God forbid Corbyn gets in office. You know, I don't think that'll ever happen. But mm-hmm. you know, there are all these clouds on the horizon. So raising capital right now is not the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, we we need to raise capital. So we're thinking of all kinds of clever ways and interesting ways, different markets to raise capital in. But that's our challenge right now is raising the capital to do what we say we're going to do. That's really interesting. Yeah, because in that regard, there's also a lot of these lenders and going back to lenders rather than sort of equity providers, these lenders still need to lend. Pension institutions still need to get an income from their lending. And so there's almost in my mind, going to be a time where it's dried up so much that actually they just need to get that money out the door. Yeah. Because lenders only get paid when they're lending. Yeah, no, exactly. Paul, that's been absolutely amazing. 
Great. I've got one last question for you. Mm. What's the kindest this is where thing? the shoe drops. Right? <laughs> What's the kindest thing someone has ever done for you in business? The kindest thing that you feel has helped you the most. Well, I think all those people that supported my business that came on board when all we had was an idea. You know, the faith that people put in the idea and put in me then and now. To me, that's that's the kindest thing. You know, because at the end of the day, I don't do the work. You know, people might think I do the work, but actually I try to do as little as I can. It's it's the people behind you that make all this happen. The credit needs to go to them, not to me. I think that the kindest thing that people have done is believe in what I'm trying to, to achieve. Thanks very much. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, not at all. And how can, uh, if we've got listeners that are interested in the Hilltop credit facilities, how can they get in touch with Hilltop? You know, the easiest thing to do is just go on our website and all the information's there. It's www.hilltopcreditpartners.com. There's a registration form and there's a phone number and they can either do that or call. Perfect. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.